0: Chapters 1 and 2 of A Surgeon in Arms by Robert James Manion. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1 Life in the Trenches. Life out there is so strange, so unique, so full of hardship and danger, and yet so intensely interesting that it seems like another world. It is a different life from any other that is to be found in our world today in it the most extraordinary occurrences take place and are accepted as a matter of course i am sitting in a dugout near frenois heavy shelling by the enemy is taking place outside making life in the pitch dark trenches rather precarious a number of soldiers of different battalions on this front are going to and fro in the trenches outside the shelling gets a bit worse so some of them crawl down into the entrance of my dugout to take a few minutes rest in its semi-protection they cannot see each other in the blackness but with that spirit of camaraderie so common out there two of the men sitting next each other begin to chat after exchanging the numbers of their battalions which happen to be both canadian and in the same brigade one says "'But you're not a Johnny Canuck. "'You talk like an Englishman.' Oh, "'That may be. "'I was born in England. "'But I am a Canadian. "'I've been out there for seventeen years.' "'The other returned a oh, little proudly. "'Indeed. "'I was in Canada only three years. "'Where'd you come from in old England?' "'Fabersham, Kent.' "'Fabersham. "'Well, I'm blowed. "'That's my ome. "'What the hell's your name?' "'Reggie Roberts.' "'Why, blimey, I'm your brother Bill.' affectionate greeting followed then explanations the elder brother had gone out to alberta seventeen years before while the younger was still in school correspondence had stopped as it often does with men fourteen years later the other boy went out to ontario when the war broke out they both enlisted but in different regiments and they met after seventeen years separation in the dark entrance to my dugout on the front of our division an order came through telling us that information was reaching the enemy that should not reach him for this reason all units were ordered to keep a sharp lookout for spies since we feared that some english-speaking germans were visiting our lines in our battalion at that time was a very good and careful officer lieutenant weston rather strangely one of the men of his platoon was a corporal easton shortly after the above order had come forth lieutenant weston was sent out on a reconnoitring expedition by night into no man's land he took as his companion corporal easton over the parapet they crept between flares and proceeded to crawl cautiously about among the barbed wire entanglements shell-holes and ghosts of bygone sins and german enemies at each flare sent up by us or the enemy splitting the thick darkness like a flash of lightning they pushed their faces into the mud and lay perfectly still in order to avoid becoming the target of a german sniper or even possibly of some over-nervous tommy if there is any place in this war where Napoleon's dictum that a soldier travels on his stomach is lived up to in a literal and superlative degree, it is in no man's land by night. Their reconnaissance had lasted some two hours when they started to return to what they thought was their own battalion front. But as sometimes happens, they had lost their bearings, while they were correct as to the direction toward the canadian lines in general they were really crawling to the firing line of one of the brigades to our right suddenly weston who was leading found his chest pressed against the sharp point of a bayonet he heard a voice hissing who goes there two canadians he whispered in reply all right crawl in here and no funny tricks or we'll fill you up full of lead at the point of the bayonet he and his corporal crawled over the parapet they found themselves in the enlarged end of a sap that was being used as a listening post in the darkness they could dimly see that they were surrounded by soldiers with fixed bayonets what's your name hissed the voice for out there no one is anxious to attract a hand grenade from the enemy on the other side of the line lieutenant weston and yours to the corporal corporal easton weston easton that's too damn thin now you fellows march ahead of us to headquarters and if you so much as turn your head we'll put so many holes through you you'll look like a sieve quick march and they plowed through the deep mud of the trenches till they were well back then they came out and proceeded overland to h q headquarters here after a few sharp questions a little telephoning and some hearty laughter they were given a runner to show them the shortest route back to their own battalion trench warfare as it has been carried on during this great war is different from the warfare of the past here we had and have at the time of writing on the western front alone a fighting line five hundred miles long with millions of soldiers of the allies occupying trenches dugouts huts tents and billets on one side of the line and millions of the enemy in the same position on the other for months at a time there is no move in either direction Trenches are merely long, irregular ditches, usually, though not always, deep enough to hide a man from the enemy. Occasionally they are so shallow that the soldier must travel on his stomach, during which time any part of his anatomy, which has too prominent a curve, may be exposed to the fire of the enemy. Of course, this all depends on the architectural configuration of the traveler except trenches far in the rear they are always zigzag being no more than ten to twenty feet in a straight line to prevent any shells doing too much damage the front trench is called the firing line the next one fifty yards or so behind but running parallel is a support trench and other support trenches exist back to about a thousand yards communicating trenches run from front to rear crossing the support trenches here and there a communicating trench runs right back out of the danger zone and these long trenches are at times divided into in trenches and out trenches shorter communicating trenches run from support to firing lines these different trenches give the ground from above the appearance of an irregular checkerboard the front wall of the trench is called the parapet and the rear wall the parados above the trenches on the intervening ground is overland in the bottom of the trenches when the water has not washed them away are trench mats or small rough boardwalks sometimes the mud or sand walls of the trench are supported by revetments of wire or wood no man's land is the area between the firing lines of the opponents it is a barren area of shell holes barbed wire and desolation and may be from forty yards to three hundred or more yards wide commonly on standing fronts its width is about one hundred yards saps are trenches extending out into no man's land and used for observation purposes or for listening posts they may end in craters or large cavities in the ground made by the explosion of mines dugouts are cavities off from the trenches connecting with them by narrow passages the dugout proper is a cavity small or large used for living in and for protection from shell fire they may be superficial having only two or three feet of sandbags more properly bags of sand for a roof or they may have a roof ten to forty feet in thickness, but the term is often used carelessly for any kind of shelter at the front. At dusk and dawn the men usually stand to—that that is, they stand, rifle in hand, in the trenches ready to repel any attack of the enemy. During the dark hours the men take part in working parties or fatigues to bring in water, clean the mud from the trenches carry rations or ammunition and dig holes or dumps in which munitions flares or equipment are stored fatigues are rather disliked by the men for they are laborious and just as dangerous as other work in the lines in speaking to each other and often in official communications abbreviations are much employed among officers and men for example o c or c o is used to signify the officer commanding any unit whether it be the lieutenant-colonel in charge of a battalion or the major captain or lieutenant in command of a company the m o or the doc is commonly the shortened form for the medical officer and h q signifies headquarters and may apply to company battalion brigade divisional corps or army headquarters any of which would generally speaking be specified unless the conversation or communication made it plain which was meant after big advances there are varying periods during which trench life is more or less abandoned for open warfare after an advance the consolidation of the land taken consists of again digging trenches and dugouts preparing machine-gun emplacements bringing up the artillery and establishing communications During this transitory period, the losses are often heavy, because of the poor protection afforded the men, and the fact that the enemy is well acquainted with the ground which he has abandoned, willingly or unwillingly. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2. Over the Top when a man has gone over the top of a front-line trench in an attack on the enemy he has reached the stage in his career as a soldier at which the title veteran may honorably be applied to him for to climb out of your burrow, where you have been living like an earthworm, into God's clear daylight, in plain view of enemy snipers, machine-gunners, and artillerymen, and under the same conditions, to start across no man's land toward the Hun in his well-protected and fortified trenches, is indeed to earn that distinction. Many there are who have courted death in this form again and again, and got away with it but it is a good deal like trying your luck at rouge et noir in the casino at monte carlo the odds are against you and if you keep at it long enough you are almost mathematically certain to lose out in the end the boys know this as well as you and i in spite of that knowledge over the top they go again and again by day and by night with a smile on their lips blood in their eyes and joy in their hearts at the thought of revenging themselves upon the despicable hun for his breaking of all the laws of civilization for his utter disregard of the principle that between nation and nation as between man and man lives the one great law of right attacks in which the men go over the top are of various kinds and on different scales the commonest are simple raids in which a small sector of enemy lines is the object by them we endeavor to obtain prisoners for purposes of identification of the troops opposing us while at the same time we depress the morale of the enemy then there are the immense attacks called pushes in which we mean to push back the enemy take possession of his lines consolidate and hold them killing taking prisoners and putting hors de combat as many as we can in the process these pushes are always on a greater scale and require thorough organization and preparation to be successful if they should fail our last condition is worse than our first we have not only wasted all our immense preparations, but we have lowered the spirits of our own men and raised and encouraged the fighting spirit of the enemy. The man who is sitting comfortably in his library, five or six thousand miles from the scene of battle, notes on the map on his wall that it is only five inches from the firing lines of the Allies to the Rhine he may decide that it should be an easy matter to bring up a few million troops break through the enemy lines push a million men through the gap cut the communications of the opposing forces hurl the enemy back into the rhine and make him sue for peace on paper and with the aid of a vivid imagination this may look easy in reality the preparations for a great advance are enormous For weeks before the push, even for months, the staffs of battalion, brigade, division, corps, and army are planning it. Dummy trenches are laid out from aerial photographs taken by aviators, and dummy advances are practiced with all the details as in real advances. Our information must be so complete that we know even where certain dugouts are in the enemy lines and who occupies them this knowledge comes from prisoners and deserters raids are put on to show what troops are opposing us by the identification of prisoners medical arrangements have to be completed so as to handle the hundreds or thousands of casualties that must occur immense guns must be brought up and millions of shells must be piled along the roads and stored in dumps ready for use during battle Water arrangements have to be made to supply pure water to the troops when they cross into enemy territory, for the enemy may have destroyed or poisoned the water supplies as they retired. Extra food rations and equipment must be supplied the men, places of confinement for the hoped for prisoners must be built, and finally thousands of extra troops must be brought up and trained for the attack the above are only a few of the preparations that must be made for the details are multitudinous the most difficult thing is that these preparations must be carried out so far as possible without the enemy's knowledge for he also has his aeroplane scouts taking photographs and looking about for information his observation balloons and his spies his raids and his prisoners It is even possible that we might have a deserter who betrayed us to him, though one feels that this must be exceedingly rare. If the armchair critic has read the above, he will perhaps realize a little more vividly than he has done before how difficult advances are, and why it is more easy to talk of getting the enemy on the run than to actually do it. Once he has started to retreat and you to advance, your difficulties multiply and go on increasing in direct proportion to the distance that you get from your base of supplies. Your munitions, food and water must be transported from the rear over strange roads pulverized by shell fire, while your enemy is backing into greater supplies hourly one of the most difficult propositions is to keep the different parts of your immense organization in communication with battalion brigade and divisional headquarters many different methods are used perhaps the most reliable is by runner or courier on foot The runner has an arduous, dangerous, and often thankless task, which he performs as a rule, patiently, bravely, and tirelessly. The telephone, telegraph, and power buzzer, the latter being sometimes used without wires, at a distance as great as 4,000 yards, are commonly employed, though they have many disadvantages. The first of these is the difficulty in installing them in the face of heavy shelling and counterattacks by the enemy. Secondly, they are likely to be put out of commission, their wires being destroyed by shells. Finally, their messages are often picked up through the earth by your opponents with some apparatus invented for the purpose. There are the semaphores and flashlight methods of signaling and signaling by flares, all naturally very limited in variety of use, the latter particularly so. But flares are of great service when a hurried artillery retaliation is desired, SOS flares then being sent up. The wireless apparatus on airplanes and the throwing of flares by aviators are used also to good account. But there are times when all these different methods are found wanting. Through force of circumstance, a battalion or company may be completely isolated, and then it is that the last and least employed method, that of carrier pigeons, is resorted to. In each battalion are a couple or more specially trained carrier pigeons, and to speak of the O.C. pigeons is a standing joke. The pigeons are rarely employed. It may be almost forgotten that they are with the unit, as was practically the case of one battalion at the Somme, of which the following story is told. The commanding officer had waited in vain for hours for some message as to the success or failure of a show one company was putting on. He was patiently striding up and down when a poor little carrier pigeon fluttered into his presence. He hurriedly caught it and untied from its leg the following message— "'I am bally well fed up carrying this damned bird about. You take it for a while.' After all this preparatory stage is completed, when transport, artillery preparation, communication, maps, training, dummy advances, extra rations, water, medical supplies and equipment are in order, the next move is to get all troops taking part in the advance into the most advantageous position unknown to the Germans.' the men are well fed given extra water bottles iron rations are in their kits that is bully beef and biscuit they are equipped only in fighting dress by night they are marched into the trenches from which they are to go over the top and after a few hours of rest broken by shell fire the zero hour or hour of attack arrives just before the great advance in which the canadians took vimy ridge that hill consecrated by the graves of thousands of french british and canadian soldiers our brigade had made all these arrangements we were to march into the line on easter saturday and go over the top the following morning at daybreak but at the last moment we were delayed by a brigade order due to information obtained from a german deserter information that said that the huns knew that we were to attack on easter sunday While sitting in my tent, I was visited by officers on various missions, some to get dressings to carry in their pocket, dressings that they neglected getting till the very last moment, others to tell me that such and such a man was afflicted with that grievous malady, cold feet, and if he should visit me on pretension of illness, to bear this fact in mind, and again others with no object but a pleasant word. Among those who always had a humorous word and a smile, and whose honest eyes always looked at one fearlessly through his gold-rimmed spectacles, was Lieutenant Henderson, Old Pop, as the younger officers always called him. After his usual courteous and kindly greeting, we joked about the possibility, or rather the probability, of some of us not coming back from the great advance. No doubt he voiced the opinion of most of us when he said, with a hearty laugh, You know, Doc, the main objection I have to death is that it is so damned permanent. The following day, old Pop was no more. His jolly laugh and his voice, with its pleasant burr, were to be heard no longer in our ranks. He had met death while bravely leading his men across no man's land like the gallant Scotch gentleman that he was. Something which struck me then, and which still impresses me as extraordinary in looking back at it, was the buoyant, cheerful, optimistic spirit in which our army of citizen-soldiers looked forward to the day when we were to take part in one of the greatest battles in history. We knew it was to be a fearful and magnificent trial of strength, out of which many of us would never return to the people and the lands we loved and yet all awaited it with a gay, hopeful, undaunted optimism, asking naught but the opportunity, and participating nothing but victory. It is unbelievable that the blind obedience of a militaristic kaiserism can ever subdue a soldiery who so freely offer their all on the altar of liberty. End of chapter 2